It's an honor to be able to preach this morning. It's been a while for me, but I thank you to Jeff. He's got a few weeks off vacation. And um, so he asked me to preach. And I said, sure, I would love to do it. It's, it's been a while, but I, I enjoy it. So are you ready for the new year? I hope so, because it's already here. Um, you don't have a choice, right? Have you made your New Year's resolution yet? I know some of you may make a resolution. Some of you may not. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a typical New Year's resolution maker. Um, what do you think is the top New Year's resolution for people in America? It is, has to do with health. Okay, whether you want to have a better health, whether you want to lose weight, whatever it is, it has to do with health. That's a top New Year's resolution for people in America today. And I am a typical person because every year I say, you know what? This is a good opportunity to lose some weight. Okay, this is a good opportunity to eat well. My doctor wants me to do that. It's a good opportunity to start exercising. But as you can tell, it doesn't last very long. It just doesn't happen. It might go for a few weeks, and then it's done. Um, but, but that's me. Uh, I haven't made a resolution this year. I would like to do that again. But after a few years, I've kind of smartened up and going, well, that might not work. But maybe this year will change. But that got me to thinking, uh, not about health and weight and things like that. But how can I grow in my relationship with the Lord this year? How can I grow in my understanding of who God is? How can I grow closer to him? How can I grow in my relationship with the Lord this year? Is there an area in my life that God wants me to grow and to focus on to grow in my relationship with him? And I guess that's a question I'd like you to generally think about this morning. As we come into the new year, and we're beginning this new year, take stock of what happened in 2019, and look at what God is doing in your life today and then throughout the year, and go, what does God want me to do this year? How does he want me to be this next year in my relationship with him? And how am I going to grow is there an area in my life that I need to work on to grow in my relationship with him? So that's what I'd like you to think about generally this morning. But we're going to look at one area in particular. And that's the area of grace. Grace. Before we dive into that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what is in your word it's all there for us. We don't lack anything. You give us all that we need. We just need to read it. We need to get into it and study it. We need to dig and discover all the things that you have for us so that we can grow richly in our relationship with you. And Lord, this morning I pray in particular that as we get into your word and as we dig into it and we think about it and we meditate on it, and that it's preached, Lord, that you will give me the words for people to understand. And that you will use your word, your living and powerful word, to work in people's hearts this morning. Challenge them for this new year. Challenge them this week in their relationships with each other, and their family and friends, but most of all, their relationship with you, Lord. 
And we give you all the glory, all of the honor that only you deserve. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. May 24th, 2010 started off like any typical sunny day. Nothing new, nothing special. But this day was special for Heidi and I. We'd be going to the hospital early in the morning where our first child would be delivered via C-section. We were both excited. We are both anxious. We are a little apprehensive about what to expect. Just five months earlier, we were sent to Seattle Children's Hospital after a special ultrasound. We were sent to Seattle Children's Hospital for a special fetal ultrasound where we found out that our baby could potentially, possibly have a number of neurological conditions. So we're scheduled for a number of ultrasounds in the following months to monitor the conditions until birth. And on top of that, we were told that the baby would be larger than normal due to sugar levels in Heidi's blood. And hence, um, it wasn't going to be a natural birth, it'd be a scheduled C-section. So we went through the typical pre-op instructions with the nurse and uh, the, the doctor there. And I went in to be with Heidi after they prepped her, and I went in for the delivery. Now, Heidi did an excellent job, okay? Uh, we talked and we prayed, and to be honest, she kept me from passing out. Because <laughs> I don't do well in those situations. And then we heard everybody talking in the familiar cry of a newborn baby. And our son, Hayden was born. Then we heard, um, I, we got some pictures, and we were, I was told to quickly cut the umbilical cord, and then he was taken and wheeled away to the nursery. And about 15 minutes later, I was called to the nursery by our attending nurse. And she said, come over here, you need to, to uh, see your son in the nursery. And I was met by an attending pediatrician and about five nurses. And I thought, okay, is this usual? All of whom had concerned looks on their faces. And the pediatrician explained to me that Hayden had a blood sugar level of two, along with many other things that were going on, and that he, the doctor, wanted to put in a central line IV to stabilize him. Now, one thing that you need to know is, I don't know if it's a record, but Hayden, when he was born, weighed 13 pounds in how many ounces? Eight. 13.8 pounds. He was big, all right? But he had a blood sugar of two. So he was struggling. So I signed paperwork for the consent and watched the doctors and more nurses come around him and attend to him. And thankfully, he was only in that nursery. Um, he was the only one in the nursery. And at one point, I counted 12 nurses and doctors working on him. I wasn't sure what to think uh, until our nurse came to me and told me that Heidi was out of post-op, and so I could go and see her. And so I ran, and, and, and I don't think I ran. I probably walked really fast. But I went over, and I saw her in post-op, and we talked. And she was kind of still groggy a little bit, but we talked a little bit, and I kind of filled her in. And so she was a little concerned. And then I thought, oh, my son, he's back in the nursery, you know? So I spent the next hour or so running back and forth and back and forth because I needed to see my wife and help her, but I also wanted to be with my son and find out what was going on. 
Thankfully, my parents came. They were able to calm me down a bit and help out. And, and by late morning, I was being advised that they wanted to send Hayden to Seattle Children's Hospital to receive specialized care. So they packed Hayden up into an incubator and wheeled him over to Heidi's room so that she could see him. Now, at this point, she hadn't even been able to touch him, and she wasn't allowed to touch him. Uh, and so there wasn't that connection made yet. Wheeled him in, she got to say hello and goodbye. And before you know it, two flight nurses were helicoptered in. And the four of us, the two nurses and Hayden and I, were loaded up into an ambulance with full sirens and lights and headed to the airport to fly from Wenatchee to Seattle. Once we landed in Seattle and transported to Seattle Children's Hospital by ambulance again, I didn't see Hayden for a while. He was in the emergency room, and they were prepping him up, and that was probably a good thing because they hooked him up to more machines and more tubes and stuff like that. And the, we wanted to stabilize him and prepare him for his stay in the, the NICU. And that night, after phoning Heidi and talking with her and talking with family and getting some things situated and spending some time with Hayden in his room and um, signing papers and making decisions about stuff, and I decided, you know, I, I need to rest it was late at night, early in the morning. And in Seattle Children's, they have up in the upper level a little room where you can just stay in a bed and rest if you want. And they have bathrooms that you can use up there too for families. And, and so I went up to that room. I took my little bag that I had, set it down, and I went to the bathroom to take a shower. And I can specifically remember taking a shower. And it was just me, and I just sobbed. I... I I just sobbed. I had to let it go. And I was crying out to the Lord. I was going, Lord. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a cry of why me? Why is this happening? No. It wasn't that I was mad at him or anything. I just needed help. I needed his help. I was alone and in a situation that only he could provide for. And I remembered a few different verses as I was there. Thankfully, as a kid, I memorized a lot of scripture. And it stuck, thankfully. A few verses came to mind. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where it talks about Paul's relationship with the Lord. And the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And I remember Psalm 62, 2, where David is crying out as his enemies are pursuing him. And David said, he only is my rock. In my salvation, I will not be greatly moved. And I pictured Paul with his physical limitations that were limiting to him. And I pictured David as his enemies were trying to chase after him and kill him. And I thought, you know what? I don't have it so bad. It's not really that bad. It's hard for me. I'm struggling. It's tough for me. But compared to these guys, no. I don't have it that bad. And you know what? God bring me through any situation no matter what. And I realized that then. God was going to bring me through. Over the next two months, Hayden had to stay in the hospital. And I was traveling back and forth from Seattle to Wenatchee every week. And Heidi was staying at my, my folks' RV there at the, the hospital. They have special little hookups for them. All these different things you find out about hospitals that you just don't see when you, you're just visiting. Um, so Heidi was in there, and Hayden was in the hospital, and we go back and forth. And 
Um, after Hayden was moved to the general room, he contracted, as we know then, uh, neck, necrotizing endocolitis in his abdomen, swelled, different things. He had many, many procedures. He had three spinal taps. He had numerous CT scans, MRI. He was given Viagra for his lungs. Even though he's 13 pounds, 8 ounces, he was born like a premature baby. His heart and his lungs were underdeveloped, so they had to give him drugs for that. He was on morphine for pain and fentanyl and was fed by a feeding tube. And when we finally brought him home, we had to give him shots every day to wean him out. I didn't because I don't do needles. <laughs> I said, Heidi, this is one thing you got to do because I can't handle that. I gave him shots every day. I took care of feeding him through the feeding tube for months until he learned to uh, breastfeed on his own. And through all this, including multiple checkups for years to come in different things in different areas, today we can thankfully say that Hayden is normal <laughs> for a nine-year-old. We love him. I mean, for a nine-year-old, he's a great kid. You just enjoy them. And there's nothing that has side effects. There's nothing that uh, abnormalities, anything that we know of yet that he's suffering because of that. Heidi and I had always talked about having two children, though. Um, ever since we got married, before we got married, uh, we wanted to have two children. And, but after this, we were pretty reluctant to try for a second child. Um, considering all the things that we had gone through, uh, we didn't really want to go through it again. But we realized that, you know what, that's not really our choice. That's God to determine. If God wants us to have another child, whether he's normal, whatever that is, whether they have some sort of disability, whatever, we're up for whatever God wants. And so a number of months later, Heidi was pregnant again. And our continued prayer was that everything would go smoothly and that our second child would be delivered without a hitch, right? But as I've come to learn that uh, throughout my life, normal isn't normal in the Hunter family, okay? Uh, during this pregnancy, there weren't too many concerns that came up. And we developed actually a close relationship with Heidi's OBGYN in his family, which is kind of weird for me at first. Um, that's another story. But... This friendship proved to be very helpful because um, about five weeks before the baby's due date, Heidi was at a park with her friend, the OBGYN's wife and their son, and it turned out that Heidi's water broke. And our friend called her husband and he said, you need to go to the hospital now. So thankfully, I was working at the hospital at the time. I met her in the emergency room, um, so it was easy. Wheeled her up to the maternity ward, strapped her into some different monitors and things like that. And shortly after, the doctor said, you need to take a flight to Seattle again. And here comes all this stuff coming up again. We thought, uh-oh. This time we were going to University Hospital. So long story short, could go on and on, but I'm not. Um, Heidi delivered Emery, our daughter, at 5 a.m. the next morning via C-section exactly five weeks, exactly to the day um, in the hospital, uh, exactly five weeks before she was due, but 
the limit of what the doctors would deliver a baby so that there wouldn't be any complications. The doctors and the nurses were amazed uh, at what had happened, and Emery stayed in the hospital for two weeks, actually, before she was cleared to go home. She had a little bit of jaundice that needed to be taken care of, and she wasn't 13 pounds, 8 ounces, thankfully. She was 9-something, nine 9-6, nine or I don't know. Still large, but not ginormous. Um, but the doctors and the nurses, as we were there and talking with different parents and the other nurses and the doctors, they were amazed. They were like, how... You just seem so relaxed, so at ease. And we told them our story with Hayden and, and just how God provided. And it was really cool that we were able to be a testimony and a help to many people during those two weeks. But I've said all this to make a point that God is gracious, okay? God is gracious to us. God is gracious to the Apostle Paul. God is gracious to David. And God is gracious to you. No matter what we go through, God is gracious. When we had decided what Emery's middle name was going to be, we remembered back to when we first trusted God to provide her to us. Anything could happen. We didn't know what to expect. We still don't know what to expect out of a seven-year-old and her, knowing her. Um, but in the end, we were certain that God was gracious. And that's why, if you know Emery's middle name, her middle name is Grace. God gave her to us, even though we didn't deserve it. God is gracious. And that's what I really want to look at this morning. Not my daughter, um, but God's grace. What is grace, and how can we grow in that this year? What is grace? How can we grow in our grace this year? So take your Bible. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 18. Read along with me in the ESV. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now to the day of eternity. Amen. Agree? Amen. So here we read Peter's final words in his epistle, second epistle, to grow in grace and knowledge. Peter could have ended his whole epistle and his whole letter with a charge to be obedient, right? That's what he's talked about in the previous chapters. That when we're faced with temptation to stray and to follow false doctrines, Peter could have said, remain obedient. But he didn't. He ended with, grow in grace and knowledge. He could have ended his letter naming certain people and thanking them for their service and their ministry and their faithfulness, and examples of being what a mature believer looks like. But he didn't. He said to grow in grace, in knowledge. And he could have ended his letter like other biblical authors, in hopeful expectation, looking forward to future visits to each of the churches he's writing to, and giving them specific instructions until he returns. But he didn't. He ended with grow in grace, and knowledge. So what is this grace? What does grace mean? And why was it so important to Peter to end his letter with it? Well, if you're taking notes, I didn't provide any outline or anything like that, so I'll leave it up to you to freely decide how you want to organize that. Um, if you like to take notes, if you don't, no big deal, you can just listen. But here's what I like 
how I define grace, a simple definition that just resonates with me that sticks in my brain. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Other people say undeserved merit, things like that, but I connect with. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's like getting a gift out of the blue. It's not your birthday, it's not Christmas, but yet you get a gift and you didn't do anything to deserve it. You just get it. It's free. It's a gift. Like I give my wife flowers every 10 years or so. You know? She deserves it, though. I'm not saying she doesn't deserve it, but it's a free thing. There's no special occasion. That's grace. In fact, salvation's like that. You know this verse. Ephesians 2.8 says what? For by grace are you saved. Through faith, it's what? The gift of God. You don't deserve it. You do not deserve salvation. No matter how much you think you do, you don't. And it's by God's grace that he gives you salvation. Salvation is God's free gift given to you, even though you don't deserve it. It's interesting that mercy is the converse definition of grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Make sense? mind trick there for you as a believer god in his mercy doesn't give you his wrath that you deserve rather he places that on christ and by his grace offers you the gift the free gift of salvation aw tozer says the cross is the lightning rod of grace that short-circuited god's wrath to christ so that only the light of his love remains for believers So we see a little bit about what Peter's ended his letter with and why he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Peter just didn't put that in the end just to have some fancy little thing to talk about and say, hey, don't forget about this. No, he did it for a reason, okay? He put it in the end because he started the whole book with that. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we find in verse 1 that he introduces himself, Simon Peter, servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he talks to his audience, he he addresses them, and he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior. And then in verse 2, the second verse of his letter says what? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he begins by introducing himself and addressing his audience, and then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He begins his letter with grace and peace being multiplied. Now this is kind of interesting, because he ends with grace and knowledge to grow in the grace and knowledge, but he begins with grace and peace to be multiplied. Now that word multiplied in the Greek is plethuno, okay? And that means to exponentially increase, multiply, okay? So what Peter is saying here is exponentially increase your grace and your peace, all right? Immediately, when he's starting off in this book, he's saying, multiply your grace in your peace. And at the end, 
he says, grow. The Greek word for grow is oiksano. And that means to actively enlarge. I am good at growing. Not taller, usually wider. But I'm still growing, unfortunately. He wants us to grow in height, in breadth, in depth, in our grace, in our knowledge of our Lord. So you see what Peter is saying here. Okay, He's saying, first of all, he's saying multiply in it, increase, grow exponentially. And then he's saying grow, grow in your depth and grow in your your uh, width. Let me um, explain that to you a little bit. They both come from the same kind of a, a, a word here, and that is expansion, that we want to expand in our grace, in our peace, in our knowledge of who Christ is. So Peter bookends his whole letter in Second Peter with grace in knowledge. He wants us and wants us uh, and shows us how to increase and grow in that grace, in that knowledge. I was talking with a good friend of mine um, this past week about this passage and about grace and different things like that. And he kind of gave me a good explanation, a good illustration that I wanted to share with you this morning. He says, imagine at the time of salvation um, that God is a gracious God and he could have held up a mirror to us, Right? held up a mirror to us and shown us all the pus-filled, nasty, oozing sores of sin in our life. And we would be going, whoa, hold on, God. I, I can't handle this. I, I got too much. What are, where am I going to start? Where am I going to work on? God, in his grace, though, shows us one little pus-filled, oozing sword of time to work on. And once that's healed, he shows us another and continues the loving process of sanctification. Now, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of pus-filled, oozing, infected sores in my life, sin that needs to be taken care of. But God in his grace continued to show me each little area, time after time, Paul, you need to work on this. Paul, you need to focus on this area in your life. Let's focus and work on this area. He doesn't do it all at once. He's gracious to us. and shows one little thing at a time so we can handle it. Matthew Henry says, extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. And Peter recognized that in verse 3. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence. This is one of my favorite verses. Um, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I love this verse because it gives me a short burst, kind of a big shot of hope. Uh, a number of years ago, McDonald's had a commercial. And there was this girl who was in the back of a school bus with her, her Happy Meal. And, and, and she opens it up and she looks inside and she says, there's, great, there's hope in here. Strange for a commercial that a little girl, first of all, if you have a Happy Meal in the back of a bus, but open it up and say, there's hope inside, you know? But I remember that because the way she said it 
And the look on her face resonated with me that there's hope. And the point of the commercial was all the proceeds that you, uh, part of the proceeds of you buying these meals and different things go to Ronald McDonald House. But um, God's given us everything, everything. Everything's there to live a life of godliness in his word. There's nothing that we lack to live a godly life. It's all right there. He's given it all to us. That's graciousness, folks, isn't it? Are you depressed? He's given you a path to hope. Are you worried or anxious? He's given you a way to peace. Are you frustrated? Are you upset? He's given you a way to fulfillment and grace. Every last bit of what we need as a believer to live a godly life is all in his word. We don't have to wait for volume two to come out in a few months. We don't have to wait for the next episode next week. It's all right there. We've got it all. So what's the key to living this godly life? What's the key to multiplying and growing in our grace? Well, look at verse two. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? The knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, he says, his, design, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Knowledge of him who called us to his glory. Chapter 3, verse 18 that we started off with, grow in grace and knowledge. So the key to that, multiplying in grace and living a godly life, is the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of God. But Peter isn't talking about a general knowledge, okay? Just a general knowing of God. He's talking about an intimate, intimate relationship, a depth of knowledge and a depth of understanding based on a personal relationship. For example, I know my wife, right? I know some of her mannerisms. I know her favorite things. And I'd like to think that I know what she thinks. But I don't. I know my wife to a certain extent. I also know of Bill Gates. I know he's worth $108 billion, and I know where he lives, and that he likes to get away to a cabin at least once a year and read at least five books. But my knowledge of Bill Gates isn't the same as my knowledge of my wife. My knowledge of my wife is intimate. It has depth and breadth to it. It has a level of understanding that I don't have of Bill Gates, but I know of Bill Gates, okay? And that's what Peter is talking about here when he talks about knowledge. In this particular verses, he's saying, you want to grow in your grace? You want to multiply in your grace? Know God, know the depths of who he is, know the breadth of him, know God intimately, and then in verse 5, he also talks about knowledge. But that's a different kind of a knowledge. Now you might be going, well, uh, how do you know? Knowledge is knowledge, right? Well, yes and no. Um, the word knowledge in verse 2 and in verse 3 is a form of the word knowledge in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul talks about adding different things um, to this knowledge. And actually, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, he says, add to 
virtue, knowledge. In verse 6, knowledge, self-control. That word knowledge is a general understanding. If you look at the Greek word there, I'll see if I can pronounce it because I'm not up on all my Greek uh, all the time, but um, it's gnosis, to know something, to understand something. The word for knowledge in verse 2, in verse 3, is it relates to grace and peace in a deep understanding of who God is, is epignosis. So I like to think of it as the, the knowledge, the deep, the understanding, the, the depth of Christ's knowledge in verse 2 and verse 3 is epic knowledge, right? You go on an epic adventure. Is it just like any other adventure? No. It's like a super adventure. It's an action-packed adventure. It's a, it's a great adventure. Same with the knowledge here in verse 2 and verse 3. It's a deep knowledge. It's a great knowledge. It's an expansive understanding of who and what God is. It's intimate. It's close. It's not just the regular knowledge, knowing about something. Um, it's epic, like a video game. Have you ever played an epic video game? <laughs> I know I haven't played one very often, but my son plays epic video games, jumps from one to another. You know, it's a great video game. Holds your attention. You're captivated by it. Maybe you've seen an epic football game. <laughs> there you go. Now I'm talking your language, Gary. <laughs> Hopefully today we'll have an epic football game, right? I hope so. And that epicness will result in the Seahawks win. But epic goes far beyond just the normal. And what Paul is, or Peter is talking about in two, verse 2 and verse 3 is he's saying, Growing in your grace requires an epic, a deep and intimate knowledge of who and what God is. So the key to growing and multiplying in your grace is a deep and intimate understanding of God, which only comes through an intimate relationship with him. Peter says that this deep knowledge is fueled by seven different qualities. And we're going to look quickly at those beginning uh, at verse 8. And if these qualities are in you and increase in you, you know that you're growing in your knowledge, your depth, your understanding, your intimacy with God. Go back to, um, not verse 8, I just explained verse 8, uh, but verse 5, Peter says, you want to grow in your knowledge and your understanding of who he is, your depth? Well, make every effort to supplement your faith. Peter takes it for granted that you start off with faith. Well, what's faith? It's trusting in what God says he will do and then acting according to that. That you trust God's promises in his word. That you trust what he says in his word, that he is going to do it. And then you don't just sit there and go, yeah, that was great. You act on it. That's what faith is. And Peter assumes that you've started off with this faith as a believer. Um, that's obvious with act of salvation. So he says, start off with the faith in verse 5. Supplement your faith with virtue. Well, what's virtue? Virtue is kind of like being heroic. It has a, a connotation of standing out as being a person of excellence. Are you a virtuous person at your job? Are you a virtuous person with your family and the people around you? Do you work toward excellence in the things that you do? 
Or are you like many people in this world that just do the average or just do the minimal to get by? Peter says, add to your faith, excellence. Add to the virtue, knowledge. In the end of verse 5, this knowledge is the root of the meaning. A basic understanding, being aware of the things, knowing how God is working in your life. What's he doing? How is he working? Knowledge and understanding. And then add to that, verse 6, and knowledge with self-control. What's self-control? After you have that work of excellence and you're understanding things about who he is and how God is working, you are able to have the self-control. You are able to control your passions and your desires instead of the passions and desires controlling you. Peter says, add that self-control. Then after that, add steadfastness. Supplement your self-control. Add self-control with steadfastness. What is steadfastness? It's patience, enduring, doing what is right. Um, Striving for that goal of being a righteous person, doing what is right, even though it may take the time and the effort, but to be patient to do that. Peter says, be steadfast. Then he says, add to that godliness. Godliness is living reverently, living loyally, and being obedient toward God. After that, add brotherly kindness. That's a general mutual kindness and a sacrifice for one another. That's contrary to what we see in the world today, right? We see it's all about me. It's all about what I want. Not sacrificing for others, not meeting others' needs. Brotherly kindness is mutual sacrifice for one another. And then add to that, brotherly affection, love. What is love? Affection for God, affection for others, uh, a deep compassion and understanding and and, uh, a love for God. So Peter is saying, grow and multiply in your grace. And to grow in your grace, to grow in those things of how God gives us what we don't deserve and how we give others what they don't deserve, to grow in the graciousness requires an intimate understanding of who and what God is. And when we come to know who and what God is and understanding what he's doing, we see that God is gracious. And as a result, we can be gracious. So my challenge for you this year, as Peter starts off uh, this book in growing and multiplying in grace, and then he ends it with growing in grace, my challenge for you this year is to grow deep and wide and multiply in your grace, striving to mirror the grace of God, to give what isn't deserved. But to truly do this, you must have a deep and intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, which comes only by having a relationship with him and discovering who and what he is through his word. He's given it all to us. It's all there. Maybe you're a person today who is here and you don't have that relationship with God. Or you're not sure if you're a believer. The Bible tells us that God is gracious to you. He's given a gift to you that you don't deserve. He's provided a way to have a deep and intimate relationship with him through his son. 
And the nasty ugliness of sin separates us from God. We're hopeless and doomed to death because of sin. But God sent his son, Christ, down to earth to suffer death for us, the death on a cross. And the sin that separates us from God, separates our relationship from God, was paid for by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he didn't stay dead. Amen? No. He defeated death and rose to life so that we could have life with him, a godly life. You today need a relationship with the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with God, that's the most important thing for you this year is to have that relationship with Christ. If you do, my challenge for you, my prayer for you this morning is to grow in your grace, to multiply in your grace, to grow in that depth in the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for what's in your word, that you've given us everything to live a life of godliness. There's nothing that's lacking. There's nothing that you left out. There's nothing that we need to go searching for in another book to supplement your word. It's all there for us to live this life of godliness. Lord, I thank you for the example that you are to us, the example of grace. Lord, that we can be gracious people because of your grace toward us. We don't deserve anything, but by your grace, you have made it possible to have a relationship by the death, burial, and the resurrection of your son Christ. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the good news that you've given us. And, and Lord, that we can take that and we can show that to people around us. That it can spread, that uh, Lord, people around us can experience the relationship with you that is transformational. Help us this year, Lord, to be gracious people, to grow in our grace and to grow in our knowledge of you this morning, that you will be honored and that you will be glorified in it too. And we pray this in your name. Amen.